Welcome to Gestational Diabetes Club. I'm your host, Helena, dietitian, nutritionist, vegetable enthusiast, and big fan of strong coffee and dark chocolate. Join me here each week to chat about all things gestational diabetes. We'll cover everything you need to know about your nutrition, lifestyle, and all the messy bits in between so that you can feel empowered to optimize your blood sugar, grow a healthy baby, and create sustainable healthy habits to last a whole lifetime without the stress, overwhelm, guilt, or confusion. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you love it here. Hello. Welcome back. Today, we are talking all about bedtime snacks. Now, if you have gestational diabetes, which I am assuming that you do, considering you are listening to this podcast, then I'm also going to assume that you have been recommended somewhere along the way to have a bedtime snack to control your fasting blood sugar levels. I feel like it's very prevalent advice that whether it was somebody in your care team, whether it was somebody like a friend or family member or just online, very common advice is to be taking a bedtime snack to help with that fasting blood sugar level. So I really just wanted to dig into the research and the evidence that we have around bedtime snacks, give you the pros and the cons, the positives and the negatives, you know, what the current body of evidence says around having one, whether you should include one or not, depending on your circumstances and what that bedtime snack should actually look like if you are going to have one. And so what the composition of that should be, whether it's like protein, carbohydrates, that kind of thing. So I hope you're keen for this episode. I feel like this is definitely up there with one of the most common questions I get asked. So I'm sure that it has been floating around in your mind at some point. So let's get into it. So the first thing to clarify is why a bedtime snack might be recommended in the first place. And generally it's to do, like I said before, with that fasting blood sugar number which for so many women is the most challenging blood sugar level to get under control and get under that um, that target number. So if you're struggling with that, you're absolutely not alone. And it's such a difficult one because it's much less responsive to those other lifestyle modifications that we can make. So you could be doing lots of things in terms of making sure that your diet is really on point and doing um, some sort of physical activity every day getting good sleep, drinking enough water, all of those things, they definitely help with those post-meal blood sugar levels and they can help to an extent with the fasting blood sugar number. But we do know that the fasting number is really hugely impacted by hormones and things that are much more outside of our control. So, I mean, firstly, the message there is to not be beating yourself up about it if you are really struggling with that fasting blood sugar number. Like I said, you're really not alone. It's so hard for so many people. Um, and it's really, it's really one that you can't be doing if you can't be solely focusing just on your lifestyle and blaming yourself for that because there's so many other factors that go into it. And so I'm kind of getting to in a roundabout way why the bedtime snack is recommended and it's for a few different reasons that are primarily to do with your hormones. One of the common lines of thinking is that when our body has a prolonged fasting period, for example, when we go to sleep overnight and we're not consuming any food or drink, then our liver can start to release stored glucose into the bloodstream to keep a nice consistent level. And our body's very smart. Like it's, it's storing that glucose there for a reason and it's called glycogen. And we have those specific, specific stores of glycogen in the liver and in our muscle cells for times like this, for exactly times like this when we don't have access to food and drink and we need to keep our levels of, of, um, glucose in the blood nice and topped up. 
So it's very normal for that to be happening, for the liver to be releasing sugar into the bloodstream. And it happens to us like all the time. We don't notice it. Um, but the thinking is that in gestational diabetes, if we have a sleeping window that's too long and a far, I should say fasting window, because not just when you sleep. So the time between the last time that you eat and then the first time that you eat again the next morning, that if that period of time is too long, then it will activate that process where the liver starts to push out more um, sugar into the bloodstream and then that your body's insulin response isn't as effective as somebody without diabetes as insulin response might be. And so therefore, the sugar isn't going to be transported out of the bloodstream effectively, meaning that the blood sugar levels can stay elevated. So that's one of the thought processes behind why you might have a fasting blood sugar level if that fasting window is too long. And one of the other reasons we might have a high fasting blood sugar level is to do with another theory called the dawn phenomenon, where the thinking is that we start kind of preparing to wake up by our body releasing hormones like cortisol and adrenaline in the early hours. So we're talking between like 3 a.m. and um, 6 or 8 a.m. So before we actually wake up, our body kind of preparing us by releasing those hormones because they give us a little bit more pep to be able to get up and go and get out of bed. And those hormones also generally release uh, or trigger the release of glucose into the bloodstream. Because once again, that's our body's primary source of fuel and energy. So it makes sense for us to be getting a little bit of glucose in the morning when we need to be waking up. And also if we haven't consumed anything for a little while. So that's another thing that happens. And another thing that could be playing a role here is the theory that melatonin, which is considered like our sleepy hormone that's released when we are typically like about to be preparing to go to bed or to go to sleep, that the melatonin can inhibit the pancreas's ability to release insulin. And so that generally happens like at opposing times to some of those other processes. So if melatonin is inhibiting the release of insulin, then we might also get this effect where because your insulin already doesn't work particularly effectively or that response of the pancreas releasing insulin isn't particularly effective, then if you've also got the effect of melatonin working against you, then blood sugar levels can be rising throughout the night, if that makes sense. And that's to do with the circadian rhythm and everybody's own biological clock, but it's common thinking that insulin resistance is worsened at the nighttime or the time that we are asleep or supposed to be asleep in terms of our evolution and biology, so generally at nighttime. And that might make fasting blood sugar numbers worse as well. Now, where does that bedtime snack come into things? Well, one of the thought processes is that by having some carbohydrates in the system, so having a bedtime snack that contains carbs, can prevent the body from breaking down more carbs as a kind of rebound effect like I was talking about before. So that having something in the system means that that um, process of the liver producing more glucose and putting that out into the bloodstream won't need to happen. That switch won't need to get turned on because you've already supplied the extra glucose to keep ticking along overnight. And kind of similarly, there's a thought process that by having carbs in that bedtime snack 
And particularly if they are low GI, so they're slowly released, and particularly if that carb is then paired with protein and fat, which again, slow digestion and slow the release of the sugar into the bloodstream, that that can then stimulate the production of insulin. So then you might have a little bit more insulin floating around to help buffer things overnight and have that effect to lower that fasting blood sugar number. So I hope that that makes sense, that there's a couple of theories there that mean that having the carbs in particular in the system can prevent the body from needing to put more glucose into the bloodstream and can also help it to be lowering the effect of those other sorts of things. And I need to also add there that if we think about the dawn phenomenon, so when the body is also like releasing more sugar into the bloodstream because it needs to help it wake up, that maybe having that extra insulin production because it's trying to digest and break down those carbs can help to dampen that effect a bit too. Hopefully that makes sense. A little note to add is that there's also a theory around something called the Samoji effect, which is particularly thought to occur in people with diabetes. And there's there's like there's mixed evidence on this and mixed theories on whether this is actually um, a true process that happens or not. But that people who have, have insulin dependent diabetes may experience this real crash in blood sugar overnight. And then there's a rebound effect to that, which means that the blood sugar is then going higher. So it's actually, it's similar to the other sorts of things we've spoken about, but the theory is that that happens only in people who have insulin dependent diabetes. So who are providing their body with exogenous, which means like you're injecting um, insulin into your body before going to bed and that that might cause really low blood sugar. And then that might be followed by a big spike in blood sugar. But that, I feel like that's a less important and less relevant concept here. And I also want to say, I, you know, these are all kind of theories. I don't think we know exactly what all of the mechanisms are at this point in terms of fasting blood sugar and all of that. But, you know, that's just another one to throw into the ring for the sake of interest. What does the research actually tell us? Well, it's pretty mixed and fairly shaky, I have to say. Unfortunately, I wish that there was more research into this topic, but surprisingly, it is very hard to come by. And let me tell you, I scoured the internet. And so if there is anybody out there who knows something that I don't know, I would love to hear from you if you can shed some more light on the topic, because at this point, I think that it's actually relatively unknown and we're all just kind of theorizing and putting things out there and seeing what works and going with that and seeing what doesn't work and avoiding that. But it's also so person dependent. I will tell you about some of the research that I came across though. So one thing to highlight is a systematic review. So that means it's a study that's pulled together a whole number of different studies on the topic to make a conclusion about what the overall body of evidence um, suggests. So this was done in 2022 in November, so pretty recent when that was published. Um, and this is a study that was looking at whether a bedtime snack should be used to treat high blood sugar levels in type 2 diabetes. So important note, this was not people with gestational diabetes and in this study, they actually excluded any research papers about gestational diabetes. We're just talking about type 2 diabetes, 
which I know is different from what you're experiencing, but I think that it's still important to talk about this study because basically we just don't really have anything that's overly, um, as we don't have anything as robust in the gestational diabetes space, I suppose. So I had a good read through this one. And unfortunately, they didn't really have a strong conclusion. And the conclusion was essentially that we don't have any conclusive evidence for or against a bedtime snack. And the reason for that is that a lot of the studies that were included in this review were fairly poor quality. And so some of them might be well done, but a lot of the time they really missed having like a comparison group where no bedtime snack was consumed. So there was quite a lot of variety in the different studies that were done. So people looking at whether protein is more beneficial than carbs or whether a specific type or amount of carbs is more beneficial, whether a particular um, mixture of nutrients is beneficial. So, you know, there's some really interesting results to pull out of there, but overall we still don't really have any answers because even if they were comparing things like, well, is protein more beneficial than carbs? They might not have included a group to say like, was, was no snack, was no snack more beneficial or less beneficial. So there's still so many question marks. So some of the interesting things were that having something that's fairly low carb seems to be better than higher carb bedtime snacks, but the numbers there, I, I wouldn't be confident in putting a specific number on what I mean by that. So that's still relatively arbitrary to you by me just saying low carb versus high carb. But it seems like having a smaller amount of carbs than you might in your meal is helpful. And having something that is more of a complex carb or even resistant starch might be beneficial. And that's probably because it is slower digesting, slower releasing into the bloodstream. So less likely to get like a high spike and then a lower blood sugar level. So it seems like having a more complex carb is helpful. But even then, the research that was done around that was mostly done with like cornstarch, which is not something that is readily available or palatable. Like I'm sure you wouldn't want to just be eating cornstarch. So the results of that study aren't really applicable anyway but they did see some benefits in terms of reducing that fasting blood sugar number. There was mixed evidence for using just protein snacks, so no carbohydrate content, just protein. But again, there was no control group when this study was done, so we don't know whether protein was more beneficial than having no snack. And then it's confusing because then in some of these other studies, like I just mentioned with the cornstarch, that that seemed to be beneficial but we don't have a direct comparison of that with the protein from this other study. So it's all just a little bit messy. Another study found that like egg was better than having yogurt, but it wasn't better than having nothing. So having no snack then seemed to be the best approach. Um, another study though found that having branch chain amino acids, so like a type of protein powder was less beneficial than having no snack. So you know, it's so mixed that that one's then said, well, protein's no good, whereas these other studies have said protein is good. And they were all fairly short-term studies, which I'd say is a pro and a con in the context of gestational diabetes. We know that it's only really a short-term condition, but for this paper where it was looking at type 2 diabetes, that's 
hard to tease out whether there might have been a beneficial effect over time, which is still relevant to some of you who were diagnosed early on. And like I said before, we've excluded gestational diabetes participants and some of the participants in these studies were on medications as well, like insulin or metformin, which further complicates things about what that fasting blood sugar might have been doing. So I feel like I've maybe just jumbled some, like a, a lot of findings at you, but it's not really too important that you remember any of the details of that because the main takeaway is that there is nothing conclusive based on the current state of the evidence in type 2 diabetes about what bedtime snack, if any, is the most beneficial to be having because we've had some studies say that no bedtime snack is helpful some studies say that having protein is beneficial. Some studies saying that having complex carbohydrates is beneficial. So what are we meant to take away from that? We don't know. We don't know still. Then there are some, there is a, a, like a tiny bit of research in gestational diabetes. And we've got a paper from 2021. So again, pretty recent that was a randomized crossover trial. So that means that they had one group who would do like a higher carb snack and one group who would do a lower carb snack, for example, and one group who would have no snack. And then they switched the groups around. So they would have a go at the different conditions so that they didn't have the bias of the individual variation. So this looked at 68 women and they found that the carbohydrate-containing snacks were associated with higher fasting blood sugar levels and that having a snack in general was associated with higher fasting blood sugar levels. So again, this is pretty confusing given the conflicting evidence that we've seen in that other systematic review that I mentioned, and it's all just such a jumble at this point that we just don't have a clear black and white answer. And then I'll just mention one more study, which is from 2020 and looked more so at the frequency and distribution and the content of meals and snacks across the day for women with gestational diabetes and what that did in terms of blood sugar. And they found that better blood sugar outcomes were associated with having more frequent meals and snacks and also that having that evening snack also seemed to be associated with a greater likelihood of having a fasting blood sugar within the target range and that generally that contained carbohydrates. So, you know, that's kind of another vote in the in the way of having a bedtime snack. But as you can see, we really don't have consistent evidence at this point. So we, I can't make a consistent blanket recommendation as to whether you should or you shouldn't have a bedtime snack and what that's going to do for your blood sugar. And even if I did say you should have a bedtime snack, I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly what that should look like or what that um, kind of breakdown of carbohydrates and protein and fats and non-starchy vegetables or fruits should look like either. But I do have some other thoughts about it. So aside from what the research tells us, there are some other things that go through my mind when I'm thinking about whether or not to, yeah, to recommend a bedtime snack for somebody. And I suppose like just an important point there is just highlighting that this needs to be done on an individual level. And this is some of the way that I go about thinking about it, depending on who is in front of me. So one of the things to be aware of is that during pregnancy, your nutrient needs go up. So for example, in the second trimester, 
you need about 1400 kilojoules or 300 to 350 calories extra in terms of energy to be making sure that you're getting enough to support the growth of your baby. And again, I have like a huge caveat because that's different for everybody. Please don't take that as a blanket number that you should be going by because that depends on your body type, your circumstances, what you're already eating. So how many kilojoules or calories you're already getting in through your diet. So that needs to be worked out individually, but that's just kind of a um, general number that we need a little bit more energy. And then in the third trimester, same thing, you need a little bit more. Again, you need about 1900 kilojoules or 450 extra calories per day. So having a bedtime snack makes sense in that context because it's another opportunity to be able to get that extra energy in. And then really similarly, so many of your micronutrients go up in terms of your requirements. So things like iron, you need heaps more iron when you're pregnant because you've got way more blood and you're building all of your baby's red blood cells and you know all those other processes. And then you know things like folate and even protein and iodine and choline and magnesium. Like I could keep going on. There's so many of these micronutrients. We really need to be making sure that you're getting enough through your diet, not just to make sure that your baby's getting enough, but to make sure that your own stores stay topped up so that after you've given birth, you're not fully depleted. So again, another eating opportunity means another opportunity to be getting in these micronutrients. And the other thing to say about that is that when you're pregnant, you might be dealing with a whole lot of symptoms. Like you might be feeling pretty nauseous fairly often. And some of those pregnancy hormones can also make your digestive system fairly sluggish, which might mean that you're feeling full really quickly after you've eaten. And then adding to that as well, of course, your baby is potentially sitting right on your stomach (laughs) and that's making it feel a bit yuck. And that can make it hard to be fitting in enough food. So in that sense, again, it makes much more sense to be having those smaller frequent meals and a bedtime snack can fit perfectly into that to make sure you're meeting those micronutrient and macronutrient requirements and able to fit it all in without feeling really horrible trying to eat big meals. But then conversely, you might be getting symptoms like reflux and so that might make it quite difficult to have a bedtime snack because you might feel awful if you've had something and then you need to go and lie down. So that's, you know, a bit of a cross against the bedtime snack. But then there's what we know about chrononutrition, which relates to how our body metabolically handles food at different times across the day. And it's generally well regarded that we have a better tolerance to carbohydrates in the morning as opposed to the evening and just generally earlier in the day. So I like to encourage my clients to be having earlier meals and having a bedtime snack works well within that model. If I'm, um, if I'm encouraging somebody to be having an earlier dinner, and that means that then you're probably quite hungry anyway by the time bedtime rolls around. So you might quite enjoy having a bedtime snack. And it can also mean that then we can taper carbohydrates a little bit throughout the day and just sort of drip feed them in the evening. And that might give us a better response, especially for those post-meal blood sugars as well. So there's there's so many pros and cons, right? It's it's a bit of a balance that some people, it will really work for them having a bedtime snack. And there's all of these reasons that are outside of the fasting blood sugar number to be recommending one. But then for some people, it really might not work. And 
we just can't necessarily go exactly by what the evidence says because that doesn't tell us much at all. But yeah, that's that's kind of the summary of where things are at and what my approach is. And I <laughs> feel like you didn't get a clear answer from me from this episode and you might have been hoping for one, but I can't give you one. And that's the main thing that I want you to take away from this. So if you find that having a bedtime snack is working for you, go for it and keep doing it. And if you enjoy having that bedtime snack, keep doing it. And I know that for some people, it can be a really nice time when some people are finding really random stuff, like having a paddle pop ice cream or something like that um, works really well and they enjoy having it. And I'm not the food police. Like if that's the one time where you can have something and it tastes good, it feels good, it's working for your numbers, then no worries. Like, of course, we want the majority of your diet to be coming from whole foods and giving you all of those beautiful nutrients that you need. But you also deserve a break every now and then. And so if that's something that's a nice little treat to your day when you're already dealing with so much, then that's totally cool. You do need to use a bit of judgment, though, and make sure that you're choosing something that is within reason, because the other thing that we don't want to be happening is you having a really um, like high load of high GI carbohydrates right before bed and then potentially not capturing a spike that might occur, because typically you would be testing your blood sugar two hours after your dinner and then having your bedtime snack after that two hour window and then not testing again until you're doing that first thing in the morning fasting blood sugar test. So if there was to be a spike after your bedtime snack, we're not necessarily capturing that. So of course you could test that yourself if you want to, although it's kind of impractical because normally you'd be going to bed after your bedtime snack. But just bear in mind that even even if it's something that feels like a nice treat, you probably still want to make sure that it is fairly low GI, not a huge, huge amount of carbohydrates. I'm not going to put a number on it because everybody's different and still has some protein and fats in there to buffer any rise in blood sugar so or any spike in blood sugar, I should say. So consider that as well. So absolutely okay to have something that you enjoy and is a nice way to end your day but also use your judgment and just be mindful of that too. The other thing is that for some people, they really hate having the bedtime snack, but they know that it's working for their blood sugar. You might be someone like that. And again, that's totally up to you. Work with your team to see if it's something that you do need and it might take a bit of experimentation, but please only experiment under guidance of your care team. And I mean, for me, the way that I think about it is that I experiment with people in terms of having probably on the low end of carbohydrates or doing none at all and generally going for something that's going to be lower GI. That's where I would base my recommendation considering the evidence that it seems like having protein in there is good and it seems like having complex carbs in there is good. So low GI, slow release carbs is good. Um, they seem to be some of the helpful components. And sometimes having no carbohydrate seems to be more helpful as well. So I, again, I'd just base that person to person and also see what else is going on in their diet. And if there's any nutrients that we need to be making up for, and if I can put those into the bedtime snack, then I will. And I'll be smart about the timing of that. And one thing that I haven't mentioned yet in this episode is the complicating factor of whether you're taking insulin. So you might be taking insulin at bedtime. And again, this is something you really need to be speaking to your team about as to whether you need to take some food 
when you take that insulin because there's the risk of hypoglycemia. You don't want to be having your blood sugar go really low because you haven't eaten anything for ages because dinner was, you know, hours ago and you had a low-carb dinner and then you've taken insulin. We don't want you to then go low overnight because you haven't eaten anything. So again, that's person to person. You don't necessarily have to eat to account for insulin. We want to be matching the insulin to what you eat rather than the other way around. But, you know, that could be another reason that some people need to have a bedtime snack and why I might recommend a carbohydrate-containing bedtime snack for some people. So my recommendation totally varies. And for me, like like I said, if it's going to be like low GI carbohydrates and protein or just protein, that might look like something like a glass of milk, which is pretty boring. I know, and you've probably seen that one doing the rounds. It might be cottage cheese or a high-protein go-get and some fruit. It might be some nuts. It might be some eggs. It might be some crackers and cheese, crackers and dip. It really varies, and it really depends on what you like and what else is lacking in your diet and what your blood sugar numbers do in response to different things. So I can't give you a clear answer. And I've repeated that a lot, but I hope that you've found it beneficial in terms of giving you a bit more clarity on what the goal really is with the bedtime snack and how important it is in terms of your blood sugar regulation. So take with that what you will, do what you will with that information. I hope that it does help you in some way, but that's it from me. I think I think I've talked enough and I, like I said, Hope that it's relevant. Hope that it's useful. I would love to hear your thoughts on it and what bedtime snacks have worked for you because I find that fascinating seeing what is working for people. But you know, if you're struggling too, you can always reach out and we can have a chat about how I can support you. I've started coaching with people and that's been going really, really well in terms of getting some great blood sugar outcomes and having that opportunity to do that trial and error in a really safe, supportive way and have immediate feedback on what your blood sugar is doing and what we could try next time. Because I, when I'm coaching, I generally speak to my clients every single day and we'll have like that's via messaging and we'll have a face-to-face like video call over Zoom once a week. And I've, fi- I've found that that method has been very effective because I know that it's such a dynamic situation. And if that's something that sounds like it might be beneficial or interesting to you, then please reach out. The best way to contact me is probably my DMs on Instagram, which is nutrition.by.helena or my email, which is hello at nutritionbyhelena.com. And I'll put that information into the show notes. But yeah, that's it from me. If you liked this episode, please review or subscribe. I've forgotten the things. (laughs) You know what I'm, you know, you've heard it before. You've heard it before. Support the show in some way if you did find it helpful or share this episode with a friend, somebody else that you know going through this that might benefit from the information. I would so appreciate your support. It really helps me to be able to continue making episodes for you. And if you have ideas for topics, I'm all ears because I want this to be relevant and helpful for you. Yeah, that's enough of me. Have an amazing day, night, morning, wherever you are in the world. I'll chat to you soon. Bye. That is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please make sure that you subscribe or hit the plus button so that you can get new episodes delivered straight to your podcast app every week. 
And if you did find this episode useful, I would appreciate it so, so much if you could leave a rating and review or share it with a friend. It helps me reach more people so that I can help them take some of the stress out of gestational diabetes too. And if you want to keep learning about all things gestational diabetes, head to my website to find all the ways that I can support you. Thanks so much. Chat soon. Bye.